Sony. Canada. Today's date is October 23rd, 2022. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. How are you, my man? Well, we're going to find out during this episode. There's <laughs> a lot's happened this week that is uh, uh, making me very unhappy. Yeah, there certainly is a lot of that going around. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to jump right into it because we've got a loaded show for you today. So on the show today, openparliament.ca, more talk about MAID, Danielle Smith introduces a new cabinet in Alberta, wrapping up the first week of testimonies in the Emergencies Act inquiry, why does nobody want to lead the left? And more. Where do you want to start, sir? Well, let's just start right at the top. Okay. Openparliament.ca. Now, yeah. for political nerds like you and I, and hopefully some people in our audience, what a fantastic tool. Now, you sent this to me, and I'd never heard of it before, and I actually couldn't figure out how to work it, so I thought perhaps <laughs> this would be a good time for you to explain what it is and how it works. Yeah, uh, so I had a little bit of difficult, a little bit of difficulty uh, trying to get it to work as well, just because it's not, it's not totally intuitive. Um, much like the Zoom app that we're using right now, it's <laughs> <laughs> just so the listeners know. We've been struggling for about 45 minutes this morning with the Zoom app, trying to get it to record. We still can't get it to record. So I've, I've, I've sent an email to Zoom to find out why my $225 subscription that says I should be able to record isn't recording. So, um, but anyways, openparliament.ca is a great little website that I was, I found out about. And I can't remember where I found out about it, but you you go on there, you type in a search term that you want, and you click search, and then uh, I'm just going off memory here, and then I believe you have to add it at that point. Uh, like it's not just you don't just type it in and click the search button and that adds it to your account. You have to actually go through another step afterwards. So that might be where you're, you're falling down there, Tony. Um, exactly where. Yep. Yeah. So it's, I just typed in guns and every morning I get an email and in the body of the email, it says who was talking, what they were talking about. And then it gives the quote attached to that word. And so a couple of times this week, I had an email with like uh, eight or 10 uh, quotes in the email that I got in the morning. Um, it's, it's not a government website. This is a third party website. So uh, you don't have to worry about the government knowing what you're, what you're trying to find out about. You know, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great little tool. I enjoy it every morning. I, I, you know, read who had what to say about guns and, uh, 
And I think I'm going to go add a few more words to, uh, to my, uh, to my search criteria. Um, it's, it's really, uh, it's really neat. And I think everybody would, uh, would get some use out of it. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great, uh, even just fun for political junkies to see what's being talked about. So that's yeah. awesome. All right, let's move right along. And well, let's just talk about me. That was uh, next on our list. Now, yeah. post-millennial had put up an article about 54-year-old Amir Farsoud of St. Catharines, Ontario. Now, Amir has applied for MAID, and do you remember why he applied for MAID, Lewis? Yeah, uh, because he's going to be uh, losing his rental home. I believe it's a rental. He's going to be losing his rental home and does not want to be homeless. Yeah, and his he actually quoted in the article as saying, quote, I don't want to die but I don't want to be homeless more than I don't want to die, end quote. Wow. So he's applied for MAID, and he's already had one doctor say, yeah, okay, yeah, um, being afraid of being homeless is actually a perfectly legitimate reason for the state to euthanize you. Yeah. Now, I did not read, uh, I know he's been on some kind of social assistance. I can't remember what, uh, if he's got, you know, physical difficulties or what is what the, uh, the reason he's on assistance is. But he had said, yeah, his rent's going up. He's going to lose his, his home. And, yeah, rather than be homeless or try to find other accommodations, he'd rather just die. And the government is completely complicit and willing to make that happen. Yeah, and this is what we talked about a few weeks ago when, uh, when the, revi the revised criteria for MAID uh, – was announced. Um, I mean, this is, and I'm going to say it again. I'm a supporter of made. I'm a supporter of the original intent of made. I'm not a supporter of what made has become. Um, and it is something that we talked about at the beginning that we were worried about the slippery slope. Right. And, um, uh, and it's, it's kind of crazy because I, I have friends and family that have either used it or, um, or have, you know, who have uh, close loved ones of theirs who have used it. Um, and I honestly, I, I think it's more, you know, it, it's, it's more humane when the person has like a debilitating terminal disease. And the key word is terminal uh, because like, if you have terminal cancer, you are like weeks away from dying. You are in immense pain. Machines are keeping you alive. Um, that's not humane. I mean, we consider the humane thing to do with dogs is to put them down, right? Um, not to keep them alive in pain. But with people, we think that it's more humane to keep them alive in pain. Um, but the thing is, is that if you are terminal and you've got weeks to live, I don't see any reason why you should not be allowed to do that. 
Uh, otherwise, I have every concern that it's going to be misused. And we talked about that when it was first brought in a couple of years ago or a few years back. Can't remember how, when it was, it was, it was what, five, five years ago or so. Yeah. I think something like that. Yeah. And we talked about it then and we, we said, you know, this is, we, 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 I, I can't remember if you supported it or not, but I certainly did. But I also expressed a concern that I was worried about where it might go. Um, and, and now it's going to some really dark places. Like uh, if you're a minor, oh, let me rephrase that. If you are a mature minor and you have an eating disorder or you are depressed, you can apply for MAID. And as long as your parents sign off on it, the state will kill you. And that is, that's scary. I mean, first of all, any parent that signs off on that, you should not be a parent. You should never have been a parent. And, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you should go to jail. Um, but this is, this is asinine. And, and the fact that, that these changes were made because the Supreme Court of Canada said they had to be made is scary as hell too, because who the hell is the court to say that a teenager who's depressed is allowed to be offed by the government? Yeah. Well, and um, also who was the Supreme Court to say that you know, a mature 54 year old man can be off because his living arrangements are about to change. And same as that lady in Toronto who had, who had this uh, extreme scent allergy and, you know, they, uh, the government agreed to off her because she couldn't find an affordable place to live. And she was quoted as saying she wants to die basically due to homelessness. So yeah, like you, I mean, I agreed with made in terms of the Rodriguez case, which is why, made came into legislation in the first place she had yeah. terminal cancer she had no no prospect of living and if i'm not mistaken the original legislation actually said when death is imminent or words to that effect well yes a, a teenager who's depressed their death is not imminent they are what what teenager is not depressed at some point so uh, i mean it's not yeah. an imminent death from being anorexic or being depressed but yet this government has let itself walk right down that slippery slope that we were worried about right from the start. And it's just, I, uh, I supported made it first. I just cannot now at all. No, I cannot support it in its current iteration. Absolutely not. Um, I, I do, I still support the original intent and the original criteria. I do not support it anymore because this is, this is wrong. It is very wrong what has happened. And it's, it's uh, frankly, it's disgusting. And how a first world country like Canada is allowing this to happen, or not even allowing this to happen, encouraging this to happen is, is just mind boggling. But we've got 
the worst government in Canadian history. And Canadians don't seem to see that. So I, I don't know. I don't know what to say anymore about this. I mean, our government, it seems like they're just hell bent on destroying the country. Like it's like everything they do destroys the country a little bit more. That's actually a really good way to put it. And honestly, I'm actually kind of tired of talking about made, but we have to keep bringing this up because Canada, you need to understand exactly how badly we're going down that slippery slope. And yeah, even when the legislation was first being introduced in 16, 17, whatever it was, um, the Netherlands and Belgium, two countries that had had experimented with similar legislation, had said, you know, watch out, Canada, because this is what can happen, because we've been through it. And the Canadian delegation at the time was just like, well, that's you guys. That won't happen here. <laughs> Look what's happening here. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, so, unfortunately, Canada, we're going to be talking about this more as more asinine and ridiculous reasons that doctors will sign off to kill our population pop up. And they will. They keep on coming. So Yeah, and what's wrong with these doctors? That's a good point. Like, like forget the legislation. What is wrong with these doctors that they're signing off on this? That's true. This, this uh, Mr. Farsud has already got one doctor who said, yeah, you can die because you're afraid of being homeless. And the lady in Toronto had obviously two doctors to sign off to say, okay, well, because of extreme poverty, yep, we'll kill you. Like, um, whatever happened to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm? Yeah, I don't understand this. I mean, doctors are not supposed to be... Um, the angel of death, right? Like they're supposed to be the ones trying to convince people to stay alive. Like if you're suicidal, it's the doctor's job to say, Hey, things aren't that bad. Like living is better than dying. Yeah, right. Exactly. But, but it's like, it's almost like these doctors have like they're, I'd be interested to know, you know, if these doctors have a vested interest in this person dying, like, are they the ones that are going to be profiting from the death? Like, because there are doctors who, that's, this is all they do is made. Oh. And so they make their living off made, right? Like, that's, that's what they do is made. They don't do anything else. And so, I mean, like, that, that's one thing. I mean, that's a, that would be a conflict of interest, right? Um, and totally morally corrupt, but I, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it, this is, this is extremely concerning and it's not something that, um, I ever thought that Canada would be dealing with. Yeah. Well, you made a good point as far as doctors benefiting, um, that, gentleman who was uh, in, I believe it was in London, Ontario, was a veteran. It might have been Toronto. And they recommended made to him because he had been, quote, costing the system north of $1,500 a day. And yeah. I thought, okay, that's not really a reason to have made recommended to you, not just, uh, you know, they, with this gentleman wasn't even asking. They were just saying, hey, you should probably go for this because you're costing the system too much money. Like, uh, yeah, which, the criteria is expanding. It was just something that the government said would never happen to, right? right? They would, they said that they would, 
never recommend made to anyone. That, that that's not something that would ever be recommended. And, and you know what? With this, and I, I've at the even at the beginning, I thought eh, the only thing I'm worried about is people going. Oh, you know what? This patient's costing the system too much. Maybe maybe they should maybe they should uh, offer them made right. And I mean now that's happening, and it's uh, uh, scary. I mean, with with healthcare being a hundred percent publicly funded, this is the kind of stuff that will happen because they're like the system's broke. Can't afford to keep these people on on all these drugs and in the hospital and all of that because it's costing us, you know, $1,500 a day or $2,000 a day. Like this is not feasible. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. All right. So let's move on from made to, well, let's go to Alberta and talk about Danielle Smith for a moment. Now, yeah. Danielle Smith, as we all know, uh, Became officially became Alberta's premier on October 11th, I believe she was sworn in the day after Thanksgiving. And she, I don't know, the, the mainstream media wants to say she stumbled out of the gate because she didn't uh, immediately go on an apology to her because for her leadership campaign. And instead, she's gone essentially full steam ahead, and now she's released her cabinet. And I'll, I'll highlight a few of the picks only. I'm not going to go through the entire 24 people. And even that, I wonder if it isn't a little much, but she actually made some really smart moves. Now, I want to highlight just a few of those. Travis Taves, the man who stomped out of the uh, the convention floor on the night she was elected leader and did not stay to congratulate her. He actually stays on as finance minister. And Brian Jean, another competitor in the race, is now in the, the Minister of Jobs, Economy and Northern Development. Rebecca Schultz, another leadership contender, Minister of Municipal Affairs. Todd Lowen, another leadership contender, Ministry of Forestry, Parks, and Tourism. And, and brought back into the fold, by the way, Jason Kenney had kicked him out of caucus. Uh, Rajan Sauni is another competitor, the Minister for Trade, Immigration, and Multiculturalism. So the only leadership competitor that did not get a cabinet post was Leela Hare. So uh, I think that was actually a really smart move on Danielle Smith's part to give all of her competitors cabinet posts. A, it keeps them from organizing against her, and B, it shows that she's actually interested in unity. Yeah, well, and not just unity, but also putting the right people in the right positions and just using the people's talents that are available. Because, um, I mean, when I first saw the list i i immediately texted you and i said hey have you seen daniel smith's cabinet like i'm pleasantly surprised because i would not have expected her to give brian jean or taves uh such high profile cabinet posts because of the way that they treated her during the campaign i mean Taves, I mean, the way he, like you said, on, on election night, the way he stomped out of the room, never congratulated her, uh, was the, you know, the sore loser of the night. Um, I really 
didn't expect that he would stay on as as finance minister and with the way brian jean was was uh how do i say um the way he was demeaning her policies uh during the campaign and basically saying that she was an idiot. <laughs> um, he like he was not very kind to her during the campaign. Like he was, so I mean, I was I was actually kind of surprised that that she gave him such a high profile cabinet post because because that's a high profile cabinet post. Yeah, well, and I think it was uh, considering that I think Rebecca Schultz was the only one of the competitors against Danielle Smith that did not join that press conference where the other contenders all had the press conference and were speaking out against the Alberta Sovereignty Act. And then, uh, well, what do you know? The Alberta government decided that they would pull a Sovereignty Act-esque move with the firearms legislation. So uh, as we said in this show, uh, well, good for you, the, the four of you, for standing up against the Sovereignty Act, but, well, here it is in action before it's even legislation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, Danielle Smith, yeah, good on her that she didn't hold any sour grapes and she actually decided to utilize the the talents of those people. She's uh, she's done well. I mean, she kept a few people in the jobs they were in, like Travis Taves and Sonia Savage in energy. I think that was uh, also a good move to keep her there. So I think she's yeah. off to a good start. Yeah, yeah. Although the media would have you believe that she... She, uh, you know, stuck her foot in her mouth on the very first press conference because she said that never in her lifetime has she seen people discriminated against the way unvaccinated people were discriminated against the last, you know, year and a half. And, and people made a really big deal about that. Um, the thing is, is that she wasn't wrong no you know if i was a, a fact checker i would be happy to say missing context on that one and not just because i'm a danielle smith supporter but she she wasn't wrong and she wasn't saying that there weren't historical discriminations and there's not still racism etc but that's not what she was talking about she was talking about yeah. the fact that if you didn't get your shots you couldn't have you didn't keep your job as a government employee if you didn't get your shots you couldn't go to a restaurant you couldn't go out of province to see a, a sick or dying relative and that was a kind couldn't of discrimination. Fly. couldn't fly couldn't take a train exactly and i mean justin yeah. trudeau was openly discriminating against those people in the 2021 federal election campaign so that's what she was referring to and she was right he was well she also said you know i mean there was also that quote from justin trudeau that said that unvaccinated people should not be tolerated yeah that's right so so i mean she wasn't wrong I mean, in the past, because she's, what, 50 years old? Yeah. So in the past 50 years in Canada, has anybody been discriminated against as much as the unvaccinated in the past year and a half? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. And I think what the leftist media likes to overlook is that it wasn't just a bunch of angry white men who were the unvaccinated. They came from, you know, in all shapes and sizes and all colors of the, the racial spectrum. So it, uh, she wasn't trying to single out anybody but people who were unvaccinated. Well, that's a pretty large group.
or a diverse group, yeah. I would say. Yeah. So, all right. So from Danielle Smith, let us move on to the big story of the week, and that is that week one of live testimony from witnesses for the inquiry into the invocation of the emergencies act god that's going to be almost as long as our segment um so the witnesses testimony has now wrapped up for the first week and well i'm, I'm pleasantly surprised that a i've learned a few things and b there's actually some honesty coming out of ottawa yeah um we've we've been learning a lot of stuff that we already knew <laughs> there's that yep yeah, but we're just getting confirmation of it, basically. Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. Now, Mayor Jim Watson, or outgoing Mayor Jim Watson in Ottawa, um, has proved that he's a tool and that he really didn't like the uh, the Freedom Convoy protesters. And essentially, but he did not go so far. He did not say that he asked for the Emergencies Act. And I think that's the common theme, is that he didn't ask for the Emergencies Act. The OPP did not ask for the Emergencies Act. The Ottawa Police Service did not ask for the Emergencies Act. The Parliamentary Security Division did not ask for the Emergencies Act. And even the RCMP did not ask for the Emergencies Act. So it's, uh, it's quite amazing that even though no single law enforcement entity asked for the Emergencies Act, that was the narrative that came from Justin Trudeau and Marco Mendicino and Christopher Freeland the whole time. Yeah, and well, and not just the whole time during the uh, the invocation of it. I mean, it's ever since. I mean, they they it it's uh, we. I mean, we also found out that the you know the convoy organizers were in constant contact with the Ottawa police service on the way to Ottawa, uh, organizing, you know, where they were going to be parking, uh, what routes they were going to be taking to get to the parliament, uh, to parliament Hill, uh, all kinds of stuff that, you know, has never been made public until now. And, and it's really just, it's really looking bad for Trudeau and the liberals. And, uh, we kind of knew that, it was going to look really bad for them. Um, but it's just awesome to see it actually happen. <laughs> well, it is. And I mean, the testimony from, I can't remember who, I think it was someone from the Ottawa Police Service and the lawyer for, I guess, for the Freedom Convoy organizers had asked, you know, was, did the convoy protesters leave open a lane of traffic for emergency vehicles to go through? And, you know, did they constantly keep this lane open? Yes, they did. And asked the question in a few different ways that, you know, was there any time that they did, they blocked traffic and, you know, not allowing access for emergency vehicles? No, the lane was always open like they said it would be. Oh, well, all right then. So they weren't, uh, I mean, they were still a disruption. I get that, but that's what protesters do. So, it, but they... The con so far, what we're hearing is that the Freedom Convoy protesters actually kept their word. And like you say, they were in constant communication. And then we find out that they were actually, when that deal was struck to move the trucks out of the residential areas onto Wellington Street, that it was actually the Parliamentary Security Division that, that blocked that and kind of created the chaos that ensued. Yeah. No, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, this is this is not looking good for the Liberals, and we knew it wasn't going to look good for the Liberals, but 
I there was always this little nagging thought in my head that you know these politicians that head up the the police services because that's what they are. I mean the the commissioners and chiefs and stuff they're all politicians. Um, they, yes, they are cops, but they're also politi- political cops. <laughs> um, I, I was worried that they were going to all, all fall into line, um, but they didn't. They got up there, they took the oath, and they stuck to the truth. And um, the only problem I have is that none of this is ever enforceable. So, like, we're finding out all kinds of information, but there's not, there's no teeth there to actually do anything about it. That's true. Yeah, there's no consequences whatsoever, and, and that's unfortunate. But what I think was uh, kind of funny is... Earlier in the week, Doug Ford had his press conference with Justin Trudeau, and he said, I stand shoulder to shoulder with the Prime Minister and stood shoulder to shoulder on the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And then the very next day, testimony came out that Justin Trudeau and Jim Watson were trashing Doug Ford on this phone call and saying that, well, he needed to step up. And I remember you and I at the time mentioning that Doug Ford had gone out sledding uh, on that one weekend when just after the convoy had came to Ottawa I think the second weekend they were there. So yeah. yeah, he was a little disconnected and uh yeah, I wonder if after listening to that phone call where he was getting trash talked, if he was still uh you know so happy he was standing shoulder to shoulder with Justin Trudeau. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well and I mean I gotta be honest, I'm disappointed in Doug Ford um for even saying that and for having actually, you know, supported the use of the emergencies act um i thought he was a conservative i guess he's not but you know (laughs) yeah i mean that is what it is uh what was one thing i actually did learn uh was that tow trucks were allegedly already on their way before the emergencies act was invoked i had thought that they had invoked the emergencies act partially so that they could compel tow truck drivers, you know, even if it was against their will to get in there. But then, um, as we learned this week, nope, that was actually already in motion as well. So yeah, just takes away yet one more pillar for the Emergencies Act. So we're left with one reason and one reason only that the government would possibly have invoked the Emergencies Act, and that was to go after bank accounts. Yep, absolutely. That's the only thing that was done that they needed the emergencies act for. Yeah. So that that's all they've got left. This is going to be a public relations disaster and we've still got, well, uh, three, four, five more weeks. Depends how long it takes to get all their witnesses through. Yeah. And we haven't heard from any of the, the, the key organizers yet. Um, they're quite a ways down the list, which, Actually, I think it's going to turn out to be a good thing because now Chris Barber, Tamara Leach, Benjamin Dichter, they get to listen to all this testimony from, I guess, the other side, if you want to call it that. And then they can, you know, confirm or refute uh, a lot of what was said. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Uh, so one more thing I do want to say on this was that there was a, the chief uh, superintendent for the OPP made a statement that I thought was actually kind of profound and it really sort of explained a lot to me as to why the uh, the city of Ottawa couldn't handle these protesters. And this, what the gentleman said was 
these the protesters, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, is that these protesters were not like any other protesters we've ever seen. They were grandmothers and grandchildren. They were literally from all walks of life. And he said they weren't, you know, like the angry protesters who you know, who you can read. They were, you know, they had no idea who these people actually were because they were just like regular Canadians. And I think that is the exact reason why it is that the convoy protesters were able to outwit the government and the Ottawa police. They just, they didn't yeah, well, by the protester playbook. Well, and I think that that's what actually makes the protest more legitimate is that it was average everyday Canadians. Um, it wasn't, you know, people who protest all the time, you know, who protest everything. Um, these were just average everyday people who just wanted to go to work. Um, who wanted to travel, you know, who wanted to cross the border. Um, it's, this is, I think, I think the convoy was extremely important and there's still a lot of people out there who, who completely misinterpret or purposefully misinterpret why they were there. Um, I mean, my own sister still believes that they were wrong to do what they did. And I, uh, told her she was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, like, it's, it's funny because I, I told my sister she's crazy at Thanksgiving because <laughs> she says, it's not crazy. It's my opinion. And I'm like, well, your opinion's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we shared an article on our, our Facebook page last night from Western standard and the, the gentleman, it was an opinion piece. And the gentleman was actually saying he can't wait for Justin Trudeau to testify. And we, we had, you and I talked about this before that likely Justin Trudeau is going to do the best to, you know, dodge any kind of, answers or any kind of accountability but the the author actually made one really good point and that point is trudeau is terrible when he's off script and unlike most of his media interviews he's not going to know what questions are coming at him before they get asked so he's not going to have prepared questions and prepared answers that he's able to to espouse about so he's going to have to think on his feet so I think one of those feet is going to end up in his mouth at some point in time during his testimony. And I can't wait. Yeah, I can't wait either. Um, the only thing I'm concerned about is that he's just going to stick to talking points. Um, that he's not going to answer the questions being asked. He's going to treat it like question period. Um, because we all know that in question period, he doesn't, he doesn't answer anything. He, you know, he just, it doesn't matter what question is asked. He just reads what's on the sheet in front of him. Um, and I'm afraid that that's what he's going to do uh, when he testifies. Um, I mean, I can always be pleasantly surprised and see him just fall flat on his face because he can't remember what his talking point was. Um, that's entirely possible, but I mean, one thing that I'll give him credit for is that he's gotten very, very good at just repeating talking points. So, 
Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, and he uh, he knows how to run out the clock. So if he just wants yeah. to keep his talking points going, and then eventually the people questioning will just run out of time to keep pressing him. So there is that. I just hope it makes for really good, you know, YouTube clips. Yeah, I have a funny feeling it will. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that might be the best thing we get out of his testimony. So. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk for a few minutes about. Well, Canada's left. Now, this kind of struck me as just a pattern we totally noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it, it, I guess it struck me when uh, the BC NDP leadership race, I think how one uh, reporter had phrased it was that David Eby is becoming Premier of BC without campaigning or sending out a single policy talking point because his only rival in the race was disqualified and after reading why she was disqualified i get it but then i thought so why was there only two in the race in the first place knowing that the winner would become premier and i see that there's just a pattern of other left-wing parties across canada recently having similar troubles trying to find leaders yeah and it's and it's interesting because the BC NDP are in power. It's not like they're some third, some third tier political party where, yeah, who the hell wants to lead that? No, they're the governing party of my province and they can't, they can't get anyone interested in leading it. I mean, David Eby, he, David Eby is, I believe he's a lawyer, and he's worked and he worked for the BC ACLU, like the uh, um, or not ACLU, the BC's CLU or whatever. It's the uh, you know BC Civil Liberties Union. Um, he uh, he worked for them for years and years and years, uh, fighting for you know human rights basically, um, and but then he became an NDP minister and um quickly backtracked on those beliefs um but he's he's now becoming or yeah he's becoming premier now it's funny because the ndp the bc ndp anyway have a policy that they cannot have two i believe it's they're or they used to have a policy. I don't know if they still do, but they used to have a policy that said they couldn't have two men, two male leaders in a row. Um, that if they had a male leader, then they had to go with a female leader next time. Um, but they've had two white males in a row now. <laughs> so um, I guess they're abandoning that uh, pandering policy as well so uh but yeah i mean just probably because they couldn't find anybody to run so they're like well i guess we can't follow that policy anymore <laughs> but i i don't know i mean it, it, this is a recurring theme across the country and and i mean you have a whole list there yeah it's well and it's it's, it's crazy because like you say the bc ndp are actually government but they only found two people who wanted to lead, uh, one of them who was disqualified. So you move next door to Alberta, where, and this is, you know, speaking of third-tier political party, the Alberta Liberals, who did not have a seat in the legislature, nobody 
step forth to be leader of the party. Or nobody stepped up to run, I should say, so there's no interest in leading the Alberta Liberals. Then you move now over to Saskatchewan. They just recently changed leaders for the NDP in Saskatchewan, who are the opposition, and they had declared that the next leader must be a female, and they only had two ladies step up to become leader of the official opposition, for crying out loud. And then... We, and the, the Saskatchewan Liberals, who are not a force in the province at all, but had the same thing. They had a leader win by acclamation because nobody was interested in leading. Then you move to Ontario, and the Ontario NDP, who are the official opposition, have so far only had one dude step up to say he's interested in leading the party. And the Ontario Liberals, I don't know if they've had anybody step up yet to say they want to lead the party. So... What the hell's happening with left-wing parties? Are they they scaring away people who... Uh, well, they're scaring away leadership contenders, obviously, because no one wants to step up. Well, I think because they're cannibalizing their own, right? I mean, this is, this is where the woke... Where woke culture and cancel culture is, is I think, really showing uh, its results. And that is the people that are perpetuating this bullshit uh, don't even want to be the ones leading the movement because they know that they'll be taken down eventually because they're turning on themselves now. Like, like when I say they're cannibalizing uh, themselves, it's that there are those policies those that they have of being super woke and being you know, of, of cancel culture and all that, it's it's coming home to roost. I mean, it's, you know, nobody wants to put themselves out there now because every single human being has said something in their past that could be taken out of context or uh, or that where they were joking or or whatever. Right. I mean, it could be something completely innocent, but now is deemed, you know, uh, horrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. And so the people that have been perpetuating these 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 crazy ideas are now saying, oh, God, I don't want to I don't want to put myself out there. I might be next. That's actually a really good, uh, good point. That's a good insight. They, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. They they keep canceling themselves. So uh, why would you want to step up there just to uh, waste money on a campaign to be canceled yourself? So let's look at the other side of the equation. You've got people like, uh, well, Brian Jean, Danielle Smith, Pierre Poiliev, etc., who just said, you know what, you guys do your woke stuff, and we're just gonna gonna go and you know be ourselves and put forward some common sense policies, etc. you had six people step up to lead the Alberta UCP and become premier. You had, well, it started with nine and ended up with five people to lead the federal conservatives. So there doesn't seem to be that fear on the political right because I think, I think that, uh, that you nailed it there with, uh, you know, there's no fear for the politicians on the right of being slaughtered by their, by their own flog, as it were. No, and I mean, even in the BC Liberals, which we all know are not, it's not really a Liberal Party, it's a coalition of Liberals and Conservatives, but 
most of the leadership candidates that put their name forward last year were were uh, uh, were more on the conservative side, and there was there was several uh, candidates. I mean, uh, a, a guy who leans more more left of center than right won, um, but. Uh, but I, but he was only one of two, maybe in the in the in the race that were true liberals, and the rest, the rest of the field were conservatives. Um, uh, you know, Ellis Ross being the most notable of them, and uh, uh, so I mean, there was no shortage of people that that wanted to um, take the helm of, a of, of that coalition party. Uh, so, I mean, like, this is something that, yeah, I mean, I, I, as soon as I, as soon as you read that list off to me, I was like, yeah, you know what, it's true. And it didn't occur to me until now, but I really do think that it's because of their own policies that they, that they don't have anyone wanting to run for them. Yeah, I think I could, could totally agree with that. So, all right, we've got yeah, we we can probably do one more topic here before the before we get our time. Um, now, you had brought up a couple more insights just before the show on this, but starting, I believe it was yesterday, maybe it was today, that the handgun freeze uh, that the Trudeau government introduced officially takes effect. Uh, it was Friday. It was Friday. Okay. Yeah, Friday, and. Um yeah, they they made this big deal out of out of announcing it. They had three separate press conferences across the country to announce it, um, but it was something that had previously been announced. <laughs> like it's they they're just making a big deal about it to say, hey, we're doing something about all this gun crime, and because <laughs> uh, we're you know we're going to stop the most the most vetted and highly trained people in the country from owning these guns that they never use in crimes because they're RCMP vetted and trained and, and, um, and because they're law abiding citizens, but you know, those damn criminals aren't going to get their hands on these guns. Well, yeah, they weren't in the first place. (laughs) They never were. I mean, this is, you didn't do Jack all for the violent crime in this country. You did jack all for gun crime in this country. All you did was stop sport shooters from having uh, the ability to buy or sell uh, more guns to target shoot with. That's actually exactly all they did. They made no effort whatsoever to secure the border. And you even had the uh, former Ontario chief firearms officer last year saying that that was what we needed to help curb gun crime was actually to strengthen up our border. And I believe it was, uh, I think you said, was it the chief of the Vancouver police or someone in BC at any rate who had also said that this legislation was going to do nothing to, to stop handgun crime? Yeah, because those aren't the guns being used. That's right. I mean, I mean, this is this is like grade one level logic here, guys. Like, 
if if there's guns being smuggled over the border, because I believe in Ontario or Toronto anyway, uh, I think the Toronto police chief said that n- over 90% of the guns being used in the crimes, in violent crimes in in Toronto uh, or Toronto um, are... Uh, <laughs> are being smuggled over the border from the U.S. They're not sourced in Canada. They're not being, you know, there's no straw buying happening in Canada. There's, you know, all of these, I think there's, what, two two instances of straw buying uh, in Canadian history or something like that where the gun was used in a crime? Like, this is, this is, that's a misnomer. That's a straw man, right? I mean, the... The uh, but the Toronto the Toronto police uh, chief said that that over ninety I think he said it was like ninety three percent of all of the guns used in violent crime in Toronto are being smuggled across the border. I mean, so what the hell? Like, why go after us? Why go after the people who are three hundred percent less likely to commit a crime in Canada? than people who don't own guns. Like, that is the government's own stat. Yeah, well, and another stat from the government is uh, that the, you know, stabbing is the most common cause of of murder in Canada. So by their own logic, maybe they should be looking at a a knife ban of some kind. Well, don't give them ideas. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And we had a listener, I think it was uh, last year, or maybe earlier this year, had sent an article to us about a uh, how a drone had been sent across the border with a bunch of handguns attached to it, and thankfully the yep. police in southwestern Ontario caught that drone. But that's uh, uh, it's it's not you're right. There's there's no straw man buying guns legally and selling them to gangbangers. It's gangbangers getting those guns illegally, and then this ban does absolutely nothing to uh, to curb that. No, the only thing it does. The only thing it does is it stops licensed legal firearms owners from buying or selling or even transferring a gun into someone else's name. Um, that's all it does for handguns. I mean, it's all it does. And, and legally purchased handguns in this country are not a major source of, of, uh, they're not a weapon that is used in, in well, over 90% of the crimes. Like this is, this is something that, and I, and I, I'd be willing to bet that legally purchased handguns probably make up less than 1% of violent crimes in this country. Um, I, I'm willing to bet that shotguns or 22 rifles are, are more common in, like legally purchased shotguns and 22 rifles are more commonly used than, uh, than legally purchased handguns in crimes in Canada. And, and yet even that, even those guns, I mean, legally purchased guns make up like less like 7% of the crime, uh, like the, of the guns used in violent crime in Canada, the other 93%, well, at least that's the Toronto number. Anyway, the 93% is all illegally purchased, illegally stolen, illegally smuggled over the border. I mean, like that's the thing, right? Like 93% are, are, are weapons that are smuggled illegally across the border. Uh, 
that doesn't mean the other seven were, you know, the other 7% are guns that were legally purchased. That just means that they were originally legally purchased. They could have been guns that were stolen. Um, I mean, that's, that's, this is, it's so angry. It's so maddening and it angers me so much because, you know, we are being used as a scapegoat and we are being used as pawns in this, in this game. And for those of us who are, you know, firearms enthusiasts or hunters or, you know, target shooters, uh, sport shooters, right. For those of us that, that in that, that, you know, love our firearms and we, we use our firearms responsibly. um, This is not a game to us. Like, I don't know how many times I've heard over the years, nobody's coming after your guns. Nobody wants to take away your guns. You bullshit. Because that's what's happening now. I mean, I just saw a, a segment on CBC National News last night where CBC and Pauli Sousouvien and CTV are all pushing now to have the SKS banned in this country. I mean, the the SKS, you have to manually load each shell. Like, this isn't like a semi-automatic or, or sorry, it is a semi-automatic, but you have to, you have to, manually load the shells you you, this is not like preloaded mags you know like they this is not a um a, a, a firearm that is any different than any semi-automatic hunting rifle um it is there's a reason it hasn't been banned yet. You know, I mean, this isn't like some black scary gun, um, like an AR-15, you know, where it's, it's scary looking and everybody is scared of it because it's scary looking. Um, you know, this is, this is a, this is a gun. Yes, it is an actual, you know, firearm that was used in war. Yes, but so is a British 308, right? I mean, that was a gun. So is a 30-06. I mean, those are guns that, that were issued to, you know, allied soldiers in World War II. I mean, the 30-06, the 308, the, you know, those were, those were actual guns used in war just like the SKS so I mean I, I I don't understand I don't I don't know where this is well I mean I do know where this is going they're, they're going to try and ban everything I mean one thing that we've got one, one thing I realized was that 
earlier this year they they brought in these uh transfers that you have to apply for just to take possession of your gun from a gun store now like up until earlier this year like i i bought a shotgun earlier this year i just went into the store i showed them my license that i had to be you know i had to take a a, a three-day course for do a practical exam a written exam and all by you know all taught and and uh and adjudicated basically by a government sanctioned instructor and then i was vetted by the rcmp i have they they called my wife made sure that she was okay with me owning a gun um i had and ever since that day that my that my pal was uh issued every 24 hours my name is put through the rcmp database to make sure that i haven't been ch uh, uh, charged with a crime and and I, I i show that card and they say good and they they put down my information in their computer and then they give me my gun and i leave the store but now you have to you can't just go in there and buy a hunting rifle or a shotgun without the store making an application for a transfer. And so that could take 15 minutes. It could take several hours. I've heard of people saying it took them 24 hours to get their, their transfer approved. Um, and that's for non-restricted like for just hunting rifles and shotguns and the, but that's a process that the government put in place decades ago for handguns. And that's how they've been able to ban the transfer and sale and purchase of handguns by just saying that they won't approve any anymore. Well, now they've put that process in place for non-restricted rifles and shotguns. It is not that difficult for the government to just say, we're not approving transfers anymore. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's very possible. So uh, looks like we're at our time, Canada. We're going to wrap it up on that. Um, we do like to leave you on a sour note. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we do want to thank you for joining us. And we're going to get this Zoom thing figured out Hopefully sooner than later, then you'll see our audio improve a, a, a little bit more. It's actually not that bad now, but we can always do better. So uh, we are and we are having to splice this episode together. There is a point there where I was saying I told my sister she's crazy, uh, where you're going to notice that the 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 uh, audio is not. Or what I was saying sound might sound disjointed, and that's because we had to splice it together there because uh Zoom is only letting us record a certain amount of time. I think half an hour at a time, and that's uh, uh, that's all going to get fixed because we paid for the subscription. Yeah, we exactly. did. I, I I swear to you, we paid for it. <laughs> so uh, we'll improve going forward. At, uh, so yeah, thank you for joining us, Canada. And until next week, it is Tony in Saskatchewan and Lewis out here in BC. Good night. Good night, Canada.